Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm going to introduce Juliana Sparr, who we're really happy to have here. Um, So um, I'm Jessica Beard. I co-organize the Poetry and Politics Research Cluster with Andrea Quaid and Juliana Leslie. Um, Okay. So Juliana Sparr's work explores the difficulties surrounding the word, the idea, and the work of community. Her more critical text, Everybody's Autonomy, explores notions of community found in a classroom, a group of poets, or the connection between a reader and a text. Here, the work of community could lie in the act of reading, teaching, or creating texts. Everybody's autonomy rethinks the value of community as as it is produced in these moments of engagement with texts, with the act of writing, and with writing that is difficult to read, write, and understand. The difficulty of disjunctive syntax, multilingualism, repetition, and punning suggests to Spar a reading practice that is, quote, anarchic in the sense of self-governing, unquote. This book explores the connective possibilities suggested by such works and the autonomous reading practices they encourage in their readers. Here, the space between the individual and the community is not one of opposition, but of interaction. The empowered reader rethinks her relationship to the text, to difference, and to community. This act of reading produces an exchange of ideas. In this exchange, one is both part of a community, but also autonomous. Neither the community with which the exchange of ideas occurs, nor the text itself prescribe the ideas that are exchanged. We engage with this exchange also in the book of poems, Fuck You, Aloha, I Love You. Here we are presented with the table, perhaps a table we might find in a seminar room like this, um, across which and upon which such an exchange could occur. Spar writes in the poem, Switching, quote, the table is where we go to speak of uncertainty. We gather to read and discuss. We gather to puzzle. We gather because we are similar. We sway and we are swayed. We learn, we exchange. This is thinking and exchange, the love of wisdom, unquote. Here, reading creates community, uncertainty, dialogue, and thinking. But here again, the relationship with this, this exchange is vexed. The poem continues, quote, the table lets us get to the ideas of others, and we desire this. Yet we are unable to get comfortable around the table, so mainly we limit, unquote. The limitations of the community's exchange are resultant of a discomfort produced by the table, which provides a space for gathering while at the same time providing a border or a barrier to it. This barrier is embodied. Bodies are blocked by the boundaries of the table. Interspersing the sections of the table community in the poem switching are sections of tangled bodies in, quote, impossible positions, unquote, in hotel rooms. Touching and gathering are difficult here, even without borders or barriers of wood. This embodied sense of community and the question of the we who must contend with such community are complicated further in Spar's uh, book-length poem that chronicles the buildup of the U.S. invasion of Iraq after 9-11, entitled This Connection of Everyone with Lungs. Here, the embodied collectivity of shared air goes beyond the wooden barrier of the community of the table, or even the snarled intimacy of bodies in the hotel room. In this connection, community is larger than the reader, the text, the discussion, the loving exchange, the touch, the caress. In this connection, community is complicated by a planetary collective of autonomous lungs that must breathe the same air. Because lungs need air, and because lungs breathe air in and out, and because the air you breathe is the air I breathe in, there is this connection. For Spar in this poem, such connections seem vexed by questions of the nation, by the discomfort that comes with the community of the nation, by the discomfort with the borders and the barriers that a nation on the brink of the violence of war can produce. The bodies or pieces of bodies exceed these borders in the act of breath. This same act that nourishes the body also has the potential to harm it, as we are reminded by the litany of harmful substances that fill the air at the beginning of the poem. This same act changes the body at the same time, placing fragments of outside within. Spar's work holds the danger, the discomfort, the desire, and the necessity of community together in tension with one another. This tension leaves the questions of community open, unfurled, and unfurling on the table, ready for thinking, touching, exchange, connection, and transformation. So please welcome Juliana Spy. So I was, um, I'm going to read, I'm going to read talk through that combination where I'm going to in moments talk and at moments read through um, uh, work that's very much in progress on, that I'm trying to work on on the 90s and I'm having that, um, <laughs> that, uh, um, I don't know, I mean it's still, I mean when I, when I had to come and do this I thought like, oh I might as well try and learn something so I'm hoping we can kind of talk um, 
where, like, where, where it might be going wrong or where it might be going astray at, at various moments during, um, after, the, after I've kind of talked about what I'm, what I'm doing. And I also, I have a, um, I have a handout, which maybe I'll just hand it out now. And I also had this image of a seminar room, and so I'm kind of having that, ah, it's not a seminar room. <laughs> and, uh, which is making me nervous, but... I'm asking you for help, um, would be my point. I'm keeping my notebook and my pen ready to write down help. Um, So, one. At a certain moment, a moment that extends from the late 80s to the turn of the 21st century, a moment I'm going to shorthand from now on as the 90s, something interesting happens within literature in English. This interesting thing is that some of the more provocative literatures in English from various literary schools and various national traditions all blatantly turn away from standard English in order to say something about English, often something about its expansionist tendencies, something about what Pierre Bourdieu calls the unequal distribution of language capital. Much much of this literature investigates what it means to be writing in standard English. Much, although I should admit not all of this literature, claims to be anti-imperial, and almost all of it takes seriously the aesthetic possibilities of work composed of altered and disrupted Englishes. A few brief examples. In the Pacific, Lois Han Yamanaka's 93 Saturday Night at the Pahala Theater, a book that is often seen as the first breakout book in Pidgin, which is known to um, linguists as Hawaii Creole English, but which I'm going to call Pidgin throughout this, um, is written in a Pidgin that at moments mimics and mocks standard English. One poem has a female teenage narrator who, wanting to seduce a boy, exaggerates her standard English. And I'm just going to plow through this Pidgin. And and many times in this talk, I'm going to be plowing through other languages that I don't really have a very good... um, Laugh or laugh, laugh or feel free to laugh, in other words, and um, forgive me. Uh, Richard, when call me around 9.05 last night, nah, I talk real nice to him. Think I talk the way I talk to you? You cannot let boys know your true self. Here is how I talk. Hello, Richard, how are you? Um, and Hunani K. Trask in 94's Light in a Crevice Never Seen, a book that claims to be the first book by an indigenous Hawaiian to be published in North America. And in O2's Night as a Sharkskin Drum, writes a distinctly anti-colonial poetry in an English that liberally mixes with Hawaiian. Each book ends with a five-page glossary that, as Benedict Anderson notes, about early indigenous language dictionaries functions as a sort of how-to of political resistance. On the North American continent in 1991, Charles Bernstein writes A Defense of Poetry, a poem about the impossibility of there being nonsense, written in a sort of error-ridden approximation of English. He claims that um, he just typed it out and that, that but the, the errors are so um, punning, I have trouble believing him. But um, the poem begins like this. My problem with deploying a term lick, nonalin, in these cases is actually similar to your critique of the term idiopagical. Um, also on the continent, Rosemary Waldrop and James Thomas Stevens both write lyric poems in English in the last half of the 90s that incorporate Narragansett by using Roger Williams's 1643, a key into the language of America as a source. Uh, neither are fluent in the language. Waldrop, a German immigrant to the U.S., writes in this book of how she is a parallel to the European settlers, colonists of Roger Williams's time. Stevens, um, a member of the Aquasanze Mohawk Nation, puts Williams's Narragansett dictionary next to Dunn's Poetics of Conquest, refusing in this poem to make one frame, English or Narragansett, love or culture, European or American primary. What interests me most about their work is that while neither author is fluent in Narragansett, both have felt a need to include it in their work. Both works, I think, are indicative of how complicated language choices can be for writers in the 90s, how full of multiple alliances. In 93, Norbessi Philip, a poet who lives in Canada but who was born and grew up in Tobago, published the poem Universal Grammar. Um, in this poem, she takes the cliched sentence, a tall, blonde, blue-eyed, white-skinned man is shooting, and then translates it into Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, French, and German, the language of 19th century European colonialism. Um, if my grouping of Yamanaka, Trask, Bernstein, Waldrop, Stevens, and Philip in one Um, does not make it obvious enough. Let me further explain how I want to group together in this talk a bunch of writers with disparate aesthetic, political, philosophical concerns. And um, that's um, that list that I've given you, um, which I'm sort of arguing is like, it's it's very provisional at this point, and I often only have, like often, like there are many books by these writers that are doing this work, and I haven't, I've only included one, or because, um, 
in the longer draft of this, it's the work that I'm kind of talking about at very, very moments. But what I'm trying to suggest here is that there um, is a whole cluster of works that happen in the 90s that are about English in some way, and that it's that there are more works about this in the 90s. And there's always been this this long career, these sorts of works, but there's more in the 90s. And so I'm trying to do a kind of like cluster rather than individual reading individual works. Um, there are a whole bunch of writers who write in English with other languages whose publishing careers begin in the 90s. Um, um, and that would be people like Norbessi Philip, Myung Mi Kim, Joan Retallick, Antardos, Edwin Torres, Rodrigo Toscano, Yamanaka. Um, and there's also a number of writers whose careers span the 80s and 90s who, whose work is illustrative of this intensification of the something interesting that happens in the 90s that I'm talking about. And I think Harriet Mullen's work, for instance, might be one of the most explicit examples of this. Her first book, which is 1981's Tree Tall Woman, is an almost classic example of the literature of U.S. identity politics. It's written in a slightly colloquial English um, and some Spanish shows up as an ins- as an accent, and it has uh, most of the poems have a singular narrator, um, and then that narrator disappears more or less for good with 91's Trimmings, which is a book that kind of riffs off avant-garde modernism and kind of has a lot about Stein in it, but it's 95's Muse and Drudge, which is the one that I'm most interested in. And this is a work in which you see Mullen kind of exploring how language shapes culture, um, not just individuals. The singular narrator is gone, and it's a one long poem written in quatrains that celebrates again and again language's variances. Uh, Mewson Judge reads at times as a more politically pointed version of um, work by Stein or Bruce Andrews. Um, but whereas, um, who are collect- those are writers who are collecting kind of the detritus of language in their work. And I sort of see but Mullen kind of collecting um, a lot of the language, things like slangs and colloquialisms and puns and non-standard usages, um, languages that are, I mean, words that are often seen as kind of lesser and kind of gathering them together in this moment of alliance. Um, And then she also has these moments where Spanish kind of shows up and kind of takes over entire stanzas in this work. Um, And it's no longer kind of limited to accent. Um, and I think it's not just Mullen's work that kind of shows this change of emphasis and intensification. Um, I'm going to skip here, but I think some of the other examples of writers like Diane Glancy as someone who's been using Cherokee words and grammatical structures from the beginning in her work, but who intensifies it in her books from the 90s, such as Lone Dog's Winter Count and The Voice That Was in Travel. And I think even someone like Kemal Brathwaite, who, who's been, you know, writes a nation language you know, in the 70s from the beginning, um, intensifies his critique of the naturalness of English, most obviously in his use of the Sycorax video style font, which becomes a compositional font for 94's Trenchtown Rock and kind of takes over the text. Um, Or to use a slightly more macro example, certain large-scale changes in the use of the Hawaiian language and Hawaiian literature also are illustrative of this intensification. Um, While one of the concerns of the Hawaiian Renaissance of the 70s was protecting and cultivating the Hawaiian language, most of the work published in the anthologies of the 80s, such as Malama, Hawaiian Land and Water, and Seaweeds and Constructions, um, which is 1979, feature work that's mainly in English with at most a sprinkling of Hawaiian words. That's why I, I borrowed that ho-ho Manoa from you. Um, by the 90s, however, a, a very different picture of Hawaiian literature develops. Um, a number of works published in the 90s, such as the Two Plays and uh, Alani Apio's Kamal Trilogy, um, and then Trask's two books of poetry moved between Hawaiian English and Pidgin. Um, Apio's work in particular, uh, the Hawaiian as, as an occasional accent word, often used colloquially, has been replaced with often extensive passages and or dialogues in Hawaiian or Pidgin. And kind of even with, Apia is kind of an interesting example because even within his work, you see this intensification happening. Um, the first play moves between Hawaiian English and Pigeon. It tells a story of um, the, this character, Alika, who works for a tours company that's bought the land that his family has lived on since the 1500s. And, um, and there's these two brothers in the play. There's Alika and, and there's Michael. And the first play tells the story of Alika who gives in to the developers. And then, um, this, and then Michael is in jail at the end of the play. And then the second play picks up with Michael in jail. And um, it's very explicit about the politics of, of speaking Hawaiian. And it opens with Michael learning Hawaiian in jail and with him answering back to the people, the, 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 the guard in Hawaiian. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really actually quite beautiful play. I highly recommend it. Um, 
And a, a quick glance at the Native Hawaiian Journal OEB, which begins publication in 1999, and if, um, shows how dramatic the change, change has been. As an English-only poem in there is a rare exception, and I think there's two in the first issue. There might be more. I need to actually do a really close reading of it all, but it, it's, re it's very rare to have anything by, um, that only has English in, in OEB now, which I think is, again, like a kind of switch from some of those earlier anthologies. Um, or another slightly more uneasy example, which is that the longer tradition of writing that brings Spanish into English. Um, this is another one of those moments where language politics get really complicated. Spanish and English are both colonial language in the Americas, but the Spanishes of the Americas have marginal histories in the U.S., um, and thus they have this mo their own movement of linguistic independence. Um, and so a lot of the writing in the 70s, especially the stuff associated with the Chicano movement, uses Spanish and English, and um, usually presents Spanish as a marginal language next to English. But in the 90s, you can see this start to change. Um, I think Rodrigo Toscano and Edwin Torres are two interesting examples of writers who kind of question the untroubled representation of Spanish as marginal and as crucial markings of identity in the Americas. Um, both are born in the U.S., Toscano of Mexican heritages, Torres of Puerto Rican. So both are kind of doing, using that language of their heritage identity, which is a real kind of, as many of the writers of the 70s do. Um, but the work they write is way more disjunctive, arrhythmic, syntactically unusual than most of this work tends to be. Um, Torres is a neo-futurist manifestini, for example, might have as one of its many influences works like um, the Corky Gonzalez's I Am Joaquin, but it makes entirely different claims. And I've kind of given, there's a quote on this handout that I've I've used because it doesn't make it, it's one of the, it's so built around neologism. Is that when words look differently and mean the same thing? Um, which is, uh, I, yo, neo, why no, you say no, you say me, I say why no, neo, no you. Um, or the other one is, once I call you new, I know you. Um, Alfred Artiega's Cantos would be another work like that. Um, it was published in 91, includes Spanish and a language that I think is Incan. Uh, Herrera has another example of a writer whose career spans the 80s and 90s and includes Spanish in his work. Um, in, in his work that's mainly in English from the very beginning of his publishing career, but 97's Mayan Drifter um, has him included Mayan, and the 2000 collection Thunderweavers, Tejadores de Rajos, has him publishing a book that is split down the middle, and one side's in English and one side's in Spanish. And so, and so like, neither of these languages are privileged in some way. But um, at the same time, work by several poets who write mainly in Spanish but include other indigenous languages in their work, um, such as Cecilia Vicuña and Andres Ahens, um, start to show up in U.S. literary scenes. They're both Chilean poets, but ones who have been heavily translated and are often published. And Vicuña's been in the U.S., in part of like U.S. literary scenes a lot. So two, it might be obvious from this list that I gave you, but in case it isn't, a confession. Uh, in this article, I want to poke at the truism that contemporary literature is not one thing, but as many segregated things. Charles Bernstein, for instance, puts this truism this way. The state of American poetry can be characterized by the sharp ideological disagreements that lacerate our communal field of action. And I mean, that's also, you see him also in the way he calls his book um, a poetics, and that it's, he's pluralizing it. Uh, many, for instance, which question the, despite the shared island geography, growing, grouping together the political concerns of a writer such as Yamanaka, who writes in Pigeon, about immigrant experience with a writer such as Trask, who mixes her English with Hawaiian, um, in the name of cultural indigenous activism. Many would refuse to see any connection between those with more avant-garde affiliations, such as Antardos or Bernstein, um, and those with more national community, community affiliations, such as Brothwaite. Um, and this truism defines the institute within which contemporary poetry circulates from various reading series to various anthologies to various critical studies to various journals to various course syllabi, which is where I think it's like the most, the, the most prevalent, that, which is that we have a whole series of poetries that don't talk to each other or that are doing very different things. Um, and yet, and still, this article is a thought experiment in commonalities rather than diversities. Um, even as I want to acknowledge the crucial work that the argument that there are literatures, not one literature in the contemporary moment does as, as it has exposed the claims of neutrality made by standard English verse traditions as a sleight of hand. So I do not want to totally dismiss the diversity argument. All these writers that I mentioned in this talk do write very differently and have very different, have, often have differing goals. And a more nuanced study, for instance, would delve into the different intents of work that includes languages of empire and work that includes at-risk or marginal languages or indigenous languages. But still, I want to argue that all of these writers are in their different ways saying something very provocatively 
related about English and the unequal distribution of language capital that can best be seen by assuming that there is a group of writers who in the 90s do something interesting at the same time. And I want to somewhat jokingly and somewhat seriously convince you that this is a 90s style thought experiment. Um, it's been influenced by, on the one hand, the attempts to imagine a universalism that acknowledges particularity and difference that define the work of theorists such as Judith Butler and Edouard Glissant and others beginning in the 90s. And on the other hand, by those 90s models of resistance that begin with the Zapatista Rebellion in 94 and continue with the World Trade Organization protests at the end of the century. Um, the Zapatista and the WTO mobilizations are in themselves successful thought experiments of what a universalism with room for particularity might look like on a very practical level as they were organized around direct action affinity groups and allowed a number of disparate concerns to come together under the name of global justice. And if, I'm remembering how the, there were those early media complaints about how like, oh, the world, those protests, they're absurd. You've got nursing mothers and giant turtles and debt relief. Like, how can you possibly have all those, have any coherent message? Um, and, but that became obviously one of the strengths of that kind of resistance movement, that you could have all these people coming together in this. Um, another model that I'm trying to think about how it would apply would be kind of Hawaiian literature, and, um, or the literature of Hawaii, not Hawaiian. And I kept looking at the literature of Hawaii and hearing this complaint that um, it had, that you would hear kind of mumbled by, you know, maybe more conservative faculty in the halls of, of University of Hawaii, that, um, that the literature had no coherence, that it was underdeveloped, that it was all over the place. Like, look, they, they, they don't have an, a set on, a set aesthetic. Um, but at a certain point, I sort of realized that the fact that there was no formal coherence was part of the strengths of this literature, um, and that it had this kind of amazing coherence in terms of content, and that a, a huge amount of it's protesting colonialism or um, the U.S. involvement, um, the U.S. presence in Hawaii. And um, what, what's kind of actually made, made that literature strong and interesting is that it's willing to use this kind of large range of poetic forms to kind of keep pushing at this content. So it's going to—I it, feel like it keeps saying, like, I'm going to try the con concrete form over here, and then I'm going to try the lyric over here, and then I'm going to try something else to try and see, to kind of suggest that we need, to, we need all the forms of literature to be able to say anything um, about this kind of like complicate, this complicated colonial situation. Um, so basically, I kept looking at the 90s and feeling that the literary schools model and their heritages, such as the, you know, you, you end up with terms like third generation New York school, um, was not making sense. And so I began to wonder what sorts of stories could be told about literature in English in the 90s. And as I worked on this article, I kept asking myself how the universal with room for particular sort of thinking suggested by direct action might help me better understand what is so distinctive about contemporary poetry. But when I say that, I do not mean by, I do not by any means desire to suggest that these literatures to the 90s are important to global justice movements, if I need to say that. They aren't. Um, and that's actually another interesting story. Um, but rather, I want to think about what we learn from literature when we see it less as a series of individual and unique moments and more as a dialogue that happens across languages and extends beyond both literary schools and national boundaries, um, which seems obvious, but somehow seems to be something I feel like we keep overlooking. Um, these works, like most of the more interesting literature of the last half of the 20th century, are written under the influence of or about various remnants of imperialism, such as identity politics, decolonization movements, including the anti-Vietnam War movement, and the increase in mobility and immigration that is often called globalization. Um, it also makes sense to see this writing as a continuation of the very prominent debates about language that happened in the 1960s in decolonizing nations about what it means to write in English, which might be the, you know, the Noguchi Achibi Rushdie debates that happen. Um, in other words, I'm not making an argument about the new or about innovation. None of these gestures or forms these writers use are new to the 90s, if you can find any forms new to, the, to any period. Um, but the first literary book in Pigeon what, was probably in 1972 by Broda Joe. Um, in 1912, Claude McKay's um, first the, had these literary books in the, in the Caribbean Creole. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's first collection of poems and dialogue is published in 1893. James Whitcomb Riley, who's um, a guy who writes these poems in the Indiana dialect, is you know in the 1870s. Um, and the turn to multilingualism and literature in times of linguistic or cultural change, change is an old story with many different intents and alliances. Um, Dante's often cited as a beginning in the West, but as Michael Lee Warner notes, Dante had precedence. The Romans invented multilingualism as a Western literary, literary tradition for two reasons, literary homage and political expedience. 
Um, and this 90s moment I'm talking about can probably best be understood as a continuation of the concerns with heritage languages that so defines and distinguishes the literatures of the 70s. Um, a lot of this writing of the 70s moves between English and the literatures associated with the author's identity. And the use of languages other than English is often invoked as a form of cultural nationalism and the preservation of marginal cultures. And Gloria Anzel Dua kind of has the, the slogan for this with her ethnic identity as twin skin to linguistic identity. I am my language. Um, but you find it over and over again. Um, Daryl Lum kind of has similar statements about um, it's less, you know, uh, people speaking pidgin or choosing it as a symbol of local identity. And you can even find this in um, language writers like Charles Bernstein are kind of even saying like variations of this um, at moments and um, moments also. So my original assumption, assumption going into this project was that the story ends there, that there's a sort of contemporary writing that is mainly about the rep representation and preservation of cultural identity where the author writes in English mixed with a language often associated with their identity, um, which I'm now going to call the Walter Ben Michaels mistake, which is that, that association, that language equals identity, and that's it. Um, it was not until I was doing a work cited for an early version of some of this work that I realized that something more specific was happening in the 90s. What I saw as I worked on that work cited was that by the end of the century, while many writers continue to bring other languages into their Englishes, they often do this less to talk about personal identity and more to talk about English and its role in globalization. Many writers in the 90s thus are not saying I am my language, but are instead saying something about language itself, often something about the uses of language by imperialism, or another way to say this in a series of possible pithy subtitles for this article, from Anzel Dua's I am my language to Edwin Torres's No, Neo, No, You, from Kathy Song's Yale Younger Poets Poetics to Yamanaka's Plantation Poetics, from the monolingualism of In the American Tree to Charles Bernstein's A Defense of Poetry, from blah, 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 blah. Um, my guess is that this cluster of works does not happen accidentally accidentally in the 90s. And while I'm hesitant to suggest a one-on-one -on -one relationship between current events and formal trends in literature, um, I do want to note that within the US at least, that the 90s had a certain perfect stormness about it that would allow this turn away from standard English to feel so crucial to so many different writers. Um, and I mean, so, I mean, some other things that are worth remembering before I kind of get to that perfect storm is that, and this is all obvious to you, but I'm going to throw it out here anyway as part of the the things that we need to keep in, in, in mind, which is there's over 176 languages that around 176 that are indigenous to the US. All these numbers vary depending on your source. And there's around 162 languages spoken in the US. Um, the US government does not have an official language, um, but yet the collection of words and syntaxes that gets called English has an unchallenged dominance within the US. Um, and the US is consistent underfunding of language acquisition programs in its school makes us likely to change anytime soon. Um, outside the US, English is both expanding um, and putting various local languages at risk. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, tension to this starting actually in the 90s to like what, what happens when English goes into places and um, is it, uh, does it cause you know, linguistic genocide, which may or may not be happening, but it's definitely for sure that English um, ends up curtailing, pushing other languages out of the way all the time. Um, there seems to be a lot of evidence of that. Um, in the 90s, though, within, there are more and more words that are not in English are being spoken within the U.S., and immigration r rises dramatically in the 90s. Um, and I'm just going to skip the numbers on that. Um, but the, maybe within the number, the number of U.S. residents who declare they speak a language other than English at home increases dramatically. In uh, 1990, that number is 32 million. By 2000, that number is 47 million. There's really kind of, there's really big jumps in, the, in these kind of language statistics. Um, but despite English asserts, assured status as a de facto language of the US, and despite English becoming more and more dominant in a world arena, um, there arise in the 90s various groups of people within the US who are worried that English is at risk and attempt to pass legislation to make English the official language of the US. Um, which are, These are the movements that we call English only and English plus, which may or may not be a kind of lefty response to English only. It depends on how you look at it. Um, and before 1987, seven states have English only legislation. And then by now, I think the number, currently 26 states have some sort of English, official English legislation. And it's 30 if you count English plus, which I kind of want to count English plus because um, it institutionalizes English um, at the same time. Even though in, the idea English only is like only in English. And then English plus being like you can have it in English and other languages. Um, 
but it, they're all laws that we would not have had before then. And the other thing that happens in, in 96 is the, that ebonics controversy that happens in Oakland, um, which causes a huge national debate about, um, you know, about, about various language practices. Um, that's also quite hysterical um, in, 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 in all the media. Um, that said, it was not that all government action was negative. Um, there's the Native American Languages Act of 1990, declares that a U.S. federal policy to preserve and protect the rights and freedom of Native Americans to use, practice, and develop Native American languages. Um, there's a, a lot of attention to the damage that the growth of English is inflicting on indigenous languages. Um, 93 is the United Nations Year of Indigenous Peoples, and there's a and that de Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has a lot about it on language. And um, the 1990s also in Hawaii um, saw growing attention to the Hawaiian language and the establishment of Hawaiian language preschools and um, DOE Hawaiian immersion K through 12 classrooms. Similar things are happening in California around Spanish. Um, my point here is that there was a very intense public debate about language that was happening in the 90s when there was also a discussion about globalization and migration and indigenous rights and one that both changed governing bodies and public school systems. This alone, I want to argue, means that merely to include another language in one's work, any other language, is a pointed statement for these writers of the 90s. Um, and at the same time, to not include another language is an equally pointed statement and a story that I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to tell in chapters that to come. And if I had to kind of make an, an analogy to that, it might, I think like the way, I feel like we've had so much attention in recent years to, um, to global warming that and what, um, that the, the, and it's caused this huge debate around the kind of like the nature poetry versus eco poetry debate. And so like a, a film like March of the Penguins happens and um, the film becomes a kind of conservative statement, even though, I mean, it's a film about penguins and their epic journey um, that, you know, and, and, and then, you know, it doesn't mention global warming, which suddenly becomes an issue. The fact that that film is not mentioning global warming. And I kind of feel that there's similar things happening around language in the nineties. Like suddenly like whether you use other languages or not becomes loaded. Three. Um, and so moving on, I should confess that this article is just not about how current events seep into and shape literature. It is always a bit of a tall tale or a fairy tale about the 90s, an optimistic one. And when I say I've been telling you a tall tale, what I mean is that while I do believe there are a cluster of interesting works in the 90s, I also think that there are many other stories that could be told about the decade, and there are many ways that my story is not entirely true, and we can discuss some of them during the question period if you want. But... Um, I am doing, though, what all literary criticism does, and that is tell stories about its author. Um, it is often said that all literary criticism is a form of autobiography, and any literary autobiography by myself would have to spend some chapters in these works of the 90s. Um, they taught me so much, and the best way I can explain what they taught me is by confessing that I did not realize how much I needed these works until I moved to Hawaii. Um, I've written in other places about how moving to Hawaii was a sort of shock treatment that jolted me out of the complacency that my life was in innocent of these issues of language and culture. Um, and before, I had felt as if issues of colonialism were not a part of my history. And then after, I began to think that I had an obligation to address these issues that were not only issues that used my complicity and silence, but also issues that defined me in ways that I had to acknowledge. And in addition, that this obligation to be attentive to another culture and to risk being disoriented by this act of knowing that these works of the 90s insist on was not a burden, but rather was life-changing and interesting. The question I was wrestling with in the 90s was how to do this. And when I sat down to look at how writers, both of literature and of theory, negotiated this terrain, I felt stuck between theories of hybridity and theories of, of separatist nationalism. On the one hand, I felt I needed a theory that was a little less celebratory of shared history, one that was a little more reflective of the uniqueness of indigenous concerns, one that acknowledged the uneven nature of cultural exchanges and continuing colonial situations. Um, and yet, on the other hand, I needed work that was attentive to the shared histories that are the inevitable product of colonialism, even as I needed work that was also attentive to the differing access points and power relationships that define shared histories. Um, and I found this sort of thinking most liter literally in this literature of other Englishes published in the 90s. Um, on the most basic level, they pointed out something mimetic, that we walked down shared polylingual streets. But I could have learned the polylingual streets thing in any number of ways. And I actually think avant-garde modernism at the turn of the 20th century does a really good job of explaining this. Um, but more importantly and distinctively from avant-garde modernism, the story that these works of the 90s tell is one built around uneven attempts at uh, universalisms and contain multiculturalisms and respectful diversities. Um, at their best, these works attempt a version of shared, networked writing, one attuned to finding different connections amid the frequency of language, amid the noise noisy way that 
words and literary forms are public business. Um, I keep thinking of that Joan Ritalik term poetics that I find both frustrating and kind of exciting at the same time. Um, they point to how languages are both national and universal, um, are both intimate mother tongues and yet clearly cultural, created by groups of individuals over time, requiring consensus, constantly absorbing what is often marked as foreign, and also permeable as anyone can learn them. This work of the 90s, intentionally or not, carries with it a series of assumptions about the sorts of things writings can do. Um, it assumes that writing can be separated from its ties to the national and can build ties to something more webby. It uses language to suggest that all thinking, all identity happens within a net of cultures, not just one. Um, and these works suggest that the ways that we talk about things, that way, way we talk about things that do not belong to us or only to the US, that we need at moments the languages of others, languages that we do not identify with, and not only that, that it might be that the only way we can think with any complexity about the contemporary moment. Um, it interests me how many of these works are not invested in fluency. And I want to read this not as a sloppiness, but as an awareness. An awareness that we are all defined by others or by other languages without our consent. And that part of thinking with others and with literature means thinking about how one negotiates this means being error risking. There is, in other words, no way to escape the intrusion, the demands made by the presence of other languages on us. And there's something provocatively vulnerable about these works that feels really crucial for thinking about how to live one's life in the midst of it all. So four, conclusion attempt number one. I talked earlier about feeling theoretically stuck in the 90s between two ways of thinking, one that was too celebratory of hybridity and one that was too insistent on differences, and then finding my way out of that through these works of the 90s. As I worked on this talk and the decade after the 90s, I kept thinking that what I saw happening in this work is a dialogue not only between what is often called empire and what is often called the colonies, but also one between what is often called post-colonial or anti-colonial theory and what is often called post-structural or continental theory. Although, as my stuttering indicates, those terms can be so vague as to be almost meaningless. So another way to put it was that I saw a dialogue between Glissant's Poetics of Relation and Butler's Giving an Account of Oneself. These books sandwich the period I'm talking about in this article, Poetics of Relations, published in French in 1990, um, and it comes into English in 97, and then Giving an Account of Oneself comes out in 2005. Um, these are very much works of the 90s. Both are discussions of how one might talk about what Glissant calls relation and what Butler calls our fundamental dependency on the other in a time of complicated linguistic conditions that carry histories of violence within them. Um, and yet both come to this attentiveness through different paths, Glissant through the plantation, um, Butler through European philosophy. Both these books in various ways helped me to understand this interesting literature of the 90s. Glissant prompted me to think about how there, are more than, there is more than identity at stake in issues of language. Butler for attention to how our complicity with the violence done to others, even when we were not the cause of the violence, defines us. How we have an obligation to give an account of this and how this accounting must be disorienting, full of the languages of others. Both use the word opaque to describe the story that gets told out of relation, out of fundamental dependency. It isn't a word I am fond of, but I think it is a word that could be used to describe many of these works of the 90s. Um, and yet, Glissant and Butler do not talk to each other. So in my optimism, I kept trying to end this talk with a collage of quotes from these two books. I kept trying to force a conversation. My point being that in order to understand these works of the 90s, one had to negotiate through both Butler and Glissant, through both European philosophy and the plantation, but I couldn't make it cohere into anything whole. I was, I realized, working with two different languages that I couldn't form into anything that might make sense. And then I thought is what is exceptional about these works of the 90s, they managed to create a dialogue in exceptional circumstances. Five, conclusion attempt number two. Um, I would love to end this paper with the optimistic and good-feeling story that I have told about the 90s, and yet I can't. Um, I should end this by confessing that I have only told the first part of a long story, and the second part, as of yet unwritten, plans to begin with John Barr, the poet and investment biker, who becomes president of the mega-millionaire uh, Poetry Foundation in 2004. He has a book called Grace, which is a book that, he, as he writes in the introductory notes, uses the freedom of Caribbean-like speech to get away with murder. It sounds like that Rasta character in Star Wars. I can't remember the name of that. Who is that? George yeah, that guy. Um, it's a strange, bitter little book. It's also it's incredibly hard to read. Um, and, and its strange bitterness, I want to argue, can be seen in the Bush administration's desire to reestablish a nationalist U.S. poetry that is more homegrown, more American in its plain English speech. Um, the story of the ongoing attempt to reestablish a contemporary nationalist U.S. poetry has many players in it. Barr, as head of the Poetry Foundation, is one of them. Dana Joya, as head of the NEA, another. And the story even involves those California institutions that have had so much global impact, Boeing and Lockheed, um, who currently are partnering with the NEA on Operation Homecoming.
That's the end. <laughs> I was hearing you were in, in dialogue with your, your piece on um, connected disconnections in, in poly, poly, multilingual Pacific literature. Uh -huh. Seems like you get two really different models going on. One is authored English, which is sort of like a Deleuzean mm -hmm. deterritorialization of American English through a linkage with all these other languages. Uh -huh. and, and you kind of hopefully read Yamanaka along those terms, which I like. But the other one, which is closer to opacity, is more like adjacency. Uh -huh. Almost incommensurability, where indigenous languages, you know, dominant languages, uh -huh. minority languages, and but I, you know, well, anyway, then some of this stuff you can track back to the '80s. I mean, I, I, that Omanoa, I think, has all of this stuff where Hawaiian begins to uh -huh. show up and carries, sort of carries the poem and with kind of traces of opacity, but right, but. This more like the incommensurability of almost um, uh -huh. disparate <coughs> language terms. That you know, it seems, it seems something else. And, and I, I mean, you're right to say all of this stuff is proliferating, uh -huh. you know, in abundance and almost almost coming into award-winning winning dominance in some weird way. You know? But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, don't put them together. Okay, I won't. I mean, that's not what you're saying. Well, no, no, I, no, no, I like the move to put them uh -huh. together, but, um, see, well, I mean, even the, the Narragansett done one, that seems closer to this opacity. Uh -huh. It's an unresolved uh, burden uh -huh. know, of, of, of injustice. Uh -huh. But I must say, I really love what you're doing in terms of, or in terms of seeing it as acting out a, a kind of realm of Justice, you know, a realm of push towards better forms of negotiated survival, you know, within these larger frames you're setting up, the global, uh -huh. local, and I, I think it's it's a wonderful way of looking at it. But I just I don't quite know how to put the two the two, those two, the two together. Together, yeah. I think it's why you don't you don't you make a turn away from borderlands kind of thinking because I think you that's closer to. It doesn't have a real strong indigenous disruption, so it's closer to endless proliferating hybridity uh -huh. you know, or, or endless alteration, as if you know that's going to rescue us from all the other things that you know. Alter English stands for meaning A L T A R. But <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I mean, I guess maybe maybe. Maybe, I should, maybe that should be one of the questions that might define the paper, which is, can you put those things together? Or like, what happens when you do and what happens when you don't? I think, I think that's part, I think, because part of it, I mean, part of it's an argument with that Hawaii moment when, you're, when, when everyone's like, you can't, you can't put these poetries together. You have to continually refuse that putting together. And I keep wanting to put them together because I feel like I can't understand what's actually happening unless I start to see them as having in some way a dialogue with each other. Or it feels like there's a loss when you don't, when you keep insisting on that, the, the, the fiefdom yeah, model. I think it's a brilliant move because look, look at the fate of Yamanaka. People are not seeing her as this deterritorial enforcement. Somehow Asian American literature, you know, could, I mean, it's kind of pushing her out as if, you know, she's not doing the kind of work you, you're seeing her doing. Really, uh, you bring so many fascinating issues. Thank you. Um, it seems like one of the other um, kind of contexts that you might want to summon for the '90s, and I think some of the questions have been about you know you connect the '90s to the '70s, what happens in the '80s, mm -hmm. what way are some of the phenomena that you're describing sort of extending toward the mm -hmm. present and will have to be kind of recaptured or some other kind of period rubric? But um, one of the other things that's happening is this real narrowing in the market for literary translation. Right, so yeah, you know, this yeah. kind of domestic boom of the language thing, the otherness of language, at the same time that there is less translative activity at work. And yet it's complicated because, you know, to invoke the evil specter of Dana Gioia, he mm -hmm. re recently did this project that was co sponsored by the U.S. Consulate in Mexico, where he got these two editor translators to do um, kind of adjoining volumes mm -hmm. of. Um, uh, uh, a volume of contemporary U.S. poetry written in English 
translated by eminent Mexican poets and published in Spanish, mm -hmm. and then the companion volume of Mexican poetry, um, which has this, you know, overly binary mm -hmm. thing. But that that somehow gets um, becomes first of all an, an exception to the narrowing, the straightening of the yeah. translation. So in that way, we want to sort of celebrate it. But on the other hand, um, those volumes are really devoid of any kind of experimental uh -huh. um, language work as we think of it. Right. So I if, and then I also wondered if some terms like um, code switching comes up a lot in the Latino case, um, or interlanguage, which is an in, so interlanguage being the kind of language of language learners, uh -huh. and especially with someone like you invoked, um, I, I think you invoked Orsiaga who writes that poem in three languages, um, in English, Spanish, and Nahuatl, uh -huh. and um, and kind of does this complicated three-way. Uh -huh. um, but he himself, you know, is learning art totally artificially learning Nahuatl. You know, this well, they're all quotes. Yeah. Well, Aren't you might think of a different poem, but anyway, the, uh -huh. the, those Chicano movement poets who uh -huh. deliberately tried to put some Nahuatl or some other Mexican indigenous right, language into yeah. Spanish and English to get away from the coloniality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, interlanguage, that language of language learners is that, that, you know, that bridging of people coming from different directions, but there's also a, this kind of thin line between an interlanguage where you're stepping out of your native language of your mother tongue to take on this other, you know, way of knowing. You uh -huh. have to that, the way that being in another language gives you this different, uh -huh. you know, accent kind of rearranges your world. What's the difference between that and say mock Spanish, which is adding O to the end of every word and this kind of deliberately, you know, uh -huh. Schwarzenegger kind of uh -huh. way, you know, hasta la vista, no problemo, in kids' cartoons, that sort of thing. So, so there were sort of two questions. One was about literary translation, where does that stand on this kind of ideology of language that you're describing, and then interlanguage code switching, what which of those terms appeal to you? Um. <laughs> I've been, I mean, I've been trying to think about the translation thing and haven't been able to figure it out. And it's in part, I think, the fact that I can't figure it out is a sign that not enough thinking is happening right now in translation. And in other words, like, I, I, it feels like it's an issue that's so important here, and I kind of can't. I'm having this problem where I'm like. You know, who's translating and who's not translating? Because one of the things that poets do for a really long time is translate poets from other countries. And that, the language poets almost, you know, with the exception of Lynn Hegenian, that almost disappears, which is weird. Um, because that's such a big part of, like, so many, like, their, their, their immediate predecessors and so on. And so I've been trying, I, but I don't really know how to, I don't really know how to fit that in yet. And, like, um, why do people stop? But that, that stopping of translating, something's happening and I'm not sure what it is. Um, I don't know if this is poet out based, but you know, you've written about similar issues in um, that essay that you borrowed from Charles Bernstein's talk, um, Poetry in a Time of Crisis, that you, that you gave here at a different conference at a different time, in which you, you said there's always poetry and there's always crisis, and you were sort of looking at both of them moving all in parallel, but not necessarily um, causative. Um, terms with one another, uh, mostly in response to the Iraq uh, war uh, starting after the 90s, but also looking backwards to the late, uh, I guess, early 90s and the first Iraq war. Um, and I'm wondering, um, the, the, the comment that you made today that you sort of passed over so quickly because you said it was just altogether too obvious that there's no, how did you put it, no relationship, no... Um, uh, relationship between global justice movements, I don't want to enable this, that the, the 90s policy <coughs> movements or, or, or types are not right, important yeah. to global justice movements. And I just want to ask you if that, that word movements is really specific rather than issues, because it seems like the global justice issues have had a profound effect on poetry languages, yeah. language in general, rather than vice versa, language having an effect on maybe yeah. the movements. Um, uh, you know, is there an exception to that? I, I guess I keep wanting there to be. I think of the, the people that you brought up at the end, Butler and Glissant, I think about their language just really roughly, you know, that it seems like they've incorporated almost the issues that they're talking about into a language that is, this, this is a total tangent, sorry, but very coherent, that you don't have, um, like Butler feels like reading a whole new language as does Edward Bissau, uh -huh. a language. Black salt is so lyrical and it encompasses the issues he's talking about without talking about them in a way. Uh -huh. it evokes, um, 
uh, what's my point, that the language seems to be changed by the issues that they are bringing up. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly. language changed the movements, though. And poetry, our role in times of crisis, you know, I, well, it's had a conservative role. I think that's. I think that would be the answer. Like it's been, because um, it did. I mean, there was a lot of interest in poetry after 9/11. There are all those editorials in the newspaper, like, "Can poet poetry can save us? It'll give us comfort." Um, that was happening, and I think that's actually part of that story. That is this rise of what I keep wanting to call the Bush poetries that happens. Um, you know, when when the the you know the poet laureate position becomes taken back from the from the aestheticizers in a certain way and, and becomes kind of like the plain speechers, um, if, if we can use those terms. <laughs> but, um, and um, that, that, ha- that happens. And so, I mean, but the, the thing about that, I mean, I would say, you're, I think you're right. That it's a difference between movement and issues. Like, I actually think, like, the global justice movement has had a huge impact on poetry and really changed the conversation in a lot of ways. It's been really interesting. Um, but yet it hasn't really been a part of... Um, it hasn't, the reverse hasn't happened. And poetry sometimes does have, does have parts to play in resistance movements. I mean, that's the kind of story of the 70s, is that there were all these like, groups that really thought that poetry was doing really important culture. That was a place to preserve culture. It was a place to argue for cultural activism. And um, where I don't think that's happening that much anymore. I mean, even like a lot of, the, a lot of cultural activist groups have given up on poetry. <laughs> so, I guess, you know, just to follow up on that, I think there's... there's it sometimes functions at a more symbolic level. It's a kind of implicit pedagogy that's not so much mm-hmm. about, you know, here's the, here's the textbook, as it is actually a project for the writer sometimes to actually acquire the language yeah. to some extent. But sometimes, you know, it, with the actual, you know, mastery of a dialect or uh, an indigenous language as a, you know, as a second language, as a foreign language. Yeah. Um, and likewise, there's a kind of uh, at least symbolic appeal to the reader that if you were if you want to understand this work, you have to actually do this body of homework yeah. to be able to, yeah. to do that. And there's a there's maybe something like a kind of a projection of a virtual pedagogy that's not really meant to be taken uh-huh. literally as a kind of figure of pedagogy. And even some of the opacity, I think, sometimes functions to instantiate that pedagogy because it's you don't understand and therefore you need you know it's it's something you can see in let's say something like pound we really understand how that opacity works to say uh-huh. okay you know go read this and this and this, right, and this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think that there's a, there's another version of it that may be cultural and translational in a, in a yeah. different way but it's projecting that same kind of um, that same kind of program of study for for a reader in order to confront some of the opacity Right, yeah. I'm suddenly thinking about all those people I know that went to study Chinese because they needed to read, they were reading Pound, which is actually kind of interesting. I don't really know what to make of it. <laughs> I don't know. The other, the other weird um, experimental thing are, are the, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a little um, mini trend of writing your poem only in basic English, which is that language, the, you know, the version of English which only has, a, it's got a very limited amount of words and it was used to teach people English in China. It's part of the colonial project. And it's often presented as like a kind of like, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to, like a, as an egalitarian, Farrah Watton has a reading of this as an egalitarian gesture in some way and kind of totally ignores the colonial part of it. Um, but, I mean, I don't, again, I don't really know. I mean, that's a kind of interesting thing to kind of actually think about that. Are we done? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.